All right, Jesse, last week's episode goes firmly in the infuriation column. What's the story this time around? Family tensions and seething resentments come to a boiling point two days before Thanksgiving 1997 when one member of the Robertson family commits a shocking double murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about troublesome kids, bad bids, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. We had a couple really cute reviews last week. So thank you guys so much. It is the season of thanks. (laughs) And we thank you. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. And this week, as always, we are so grateful for and so excited to shout out an amazing new set of patrons. Sharif, Jacqueline W, and Justine F. Sarah S., Emily M. and Kendall Z. Shannon P., Kim D. and Michelle W. Ashley W., Francisca R. and Gina W. And Chanel J. Amazing. Thank you for joining us. And thank you all for joining us and listening in today. Like Andy said, it is the time of gratitude. And I'm very grateful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really grateful. I am grateful that this is something that we get to do together, Andy. Yep. I'm grateful for literally every single one of you who decided to tune in and listen to us and comment or join the Patreon or leave a review. It makes us feel so warm and welcome. And I think that your friends are going to be really grateful when you buy them some new (laughs) Love Murder merch on the new and improved Shopify website that yours truly created. Yeah, Andy put work in. I was like, you're the Shopify person, so (laughs) Shopify us up. I'm going to be busy writing this episode. So the new website is up. We haven't redirected the domain, but Jesse's wonderful husband created a bit.ly direction to the website so you guys can all view it and shop. So the website URL that you're going to go to right now is a bit.ly website. So it's bit.ly slash love murder pod and that will direct you to our website and our shoppable shopify web store until our domain is transferred so we will definitely put a link on instagram we'll redirect you we've got new photos up we have some more exciting stuff and merch and content coming up and oh that's true we never shared any of our photos from our photo shoot our first ever love murder photo shoot it's our debet (laughs) debet our debut. Please enjoy, comment, let us know what you think. And yeah, I can't wait to see what you all are digging for the new merch. So check that on out. I'm also grateful that by the time this comes out, you will only be two days away from me, Andy. I will. Yeah. 
Yes. So it's really hard. We're not spending actual <laughs> Thanksgiving together this year because of life and work. However, Andy will be with me Friday evening and we will be celebrating the fetching together, which is our made up holiday where we go out and get my Christmas tree. Yes. And then we'll be together for quite a bit of time, just the two of us. I think 10 days. So I'm looking forward to that. But I bet you're looking forward to us getting into this episode and not yammering away. So I think we should probably give the people what they want. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, I agree. (laughs) It wasn't even nine o'clock in the morning on November 25th, 1997, two days before Thanksgiving, when Terry Robertson's friends knew something was wrong. 49-year-old Terry had been expected to pick up a coconut cake for the upcoming holiday, but she had never shown up and her friends could not reach her. Her friend who had made the coconut cake contacted Debbie Brisson, an office manager at Carolina Counseling where Terry volunteered to see if she could get a hold of Terry. Debbie tried several times, but it seemed like the phone was off the hook because it was just ringing and ringing and ringing and it wasn't going to their answering machine. It was entirely possible that Terry had just slept in. Maybe she had a rough night, she took the phone off the hook, and now she was just trying to get some shut-eye. But Debbie could not help this gut-level feeling that something was just very wrong. It wasn't totally uncommon that Terry might be sleeping in. It just something about the situation felt wrong altogether for some reason to Terry's friends. Intuition. Yep. Terry wasn't always the neatest housekeeper, nor was she much of a cook. But she was always, always there for her friends. She was quick to offer a kind ear. She was the best listener. She was known for dropping off thoughtful presents for no reason at all that were just perfect for the people. She was just a very caring and loving individual. So Debbie and Terry had only met two years prior, but Debbie really felt like she had known Terry for a lifetime. It's one of those friends that are relatively new, but you immediately fall into sync and you experience things together and it makes your bond even closer. And it was when Debbie was going through her daughter leaving for college and they had been very close and she was having a really hard time with her empty nest. And Terry was the one who was there for her every day, calling her, making sure she had company, making sure she was okay. And that's what really bonded them together. And Terry had also been through it herself. So she had two sons and they were now in their early 20s. So they had both gone to college as well. So she could speak from experience as well. So even when Terry wasn't volunteering at the counseling center, the two women spoke most every day. Debbie was concerned. She was concerned enough to decide to drive over to Terry's Rock Hill, South Carolina home just to check in on her friend. She pulled in, noting that Terry's husband's car was gone. Terry and Earl had been married for almost 30 years. They lived in a, like, a nice upper-middle-class home. It was still pretty modest given how much money Earl was making because he wasn't very spendy, but it was a nice home in a beautiful neighborhood. They lived there with their son, who had recently moved back in. That was their son, Jimmy. Their other son, Chip, their younger son, was studying at UPenn, so Ivy League. He was studying at the Wharton Business School. Very good for him. But he was also due home any day for Thanksgiving at that point. So Debbie tried knocking first on the door in the carport, but there was no answer. This was like the main door that the family used. She knew that Terry and Earl's bedroom faced the back of the house, so she decided to go around to the back. And when she did that, she noticed immediately that something was wrong. The storm door was ajar, 
and there was glass all over the ground. It looked like the main door was a wooden door with a glass window, and it had been smashed in. Smashed in or out? Well, we'll talk about that later. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Always the first question. Always the first question. Let's just say there's glass on the ground, Detective Andrea. Okay. I mean, glass on the inside or glass on the outside? (laughs) (laughs) There's glass on the outside. Okay. Got it. So the knob turned, so the door was unlocked, and she stepped over the glass and into the dark house. So this was like kind of like a basement level, and the Robertson had turned this lower level of the house into essentially a two-bedroom apartment for their sons. Okay. So it was really nice. So there was two bedrooms. They had their own bathroom. They had their own kitchen. They even had like a game area with a pool table. So it's huge. This downstairs area is is huge. They had converted this whole basement space into a living space for their now adult sons, just in case they came back home, I guess. But I think they did this when they were like maybe teenagers. It was really nice. And it just shows also that these were two parents that were extremely considerate and very giving to their sons, obviously. So it was really dark down there because there's no light coming in. So she kind of creeps through this like downstairs level. No one's home. It doesn't seem like the boys are there. And then she starts going up the stairs. And when she opens the stairs to the main floor, that's when light just kind of floods in because there's lots of windows on that floor. And so she's temporarily blinded a little bit by the bright light. And as her eyes adjust, she starts to turn to go down the hall because that's where she knows where Terry's bedroom is because she's thinking maybe like something's going on. Terry had a history of having her own mental health issues. Maybe she needs help. Maybe she's in a depression. So she's going towards Terry's bedroom. She's calling for her this whole time. So she's yelling for her. She started yelling for her as soon as she entered the house. But there is no noise. The house is completely quiet. And so she's walking down the hallway when all of a sudden she stops short. There, on the floor, lay a human body. And there was blood all over the walls and all over the floor. And the person's skull had been crushed in. At that point, Debbie began to scream. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it was brave for her to do everything that she did up until this point. Walk in after she saw the glass, so you would assume there was a break-in, that she just strolled right in? Hell no. So only minutes later, the police would arrive at the Robertson home on Westminster Drive, and they would find a second body. The victims had been killed brutally, angrily, passionately. Though the smashed glass would suggest a home invasion or robbery, the overkill would suggest that the killer was someone far closer to the victims. Soon authorities would pull back the curtains of the suburban home and reveal a shocking tangle of hidden mental illness, seething resentments and disappointments, as well as paranoia and greed. It would take a lover turning on one of the Robertsons to reveal the deadly truth. And still, decades later, questions would linger. Did everyone associated with the murders truly find their reckoning? Whoa. That's a bad cocktail of things. That's a bad cocktail as things. And seeing as most of our American listeners will be sitting down with their family and loved ones tomorrow for Thanksgiving (laughs) dinner, and you might have your own seething family full of mental health issues and resentments, 
I thought that this was the perfect time to serve y'all a big old Thanksgiving helping of dysfunctional family fatality. My main source today is the book Family Blood by Lynn Riddle. And I also watched two TV shows on the case appropriately called Homicide for the Holidays, Thanksgiving, and Blood Relatives Cradle to Grave. Without further ado, let's start out the way most families start, with a love story. Terry Desjarnettes was a 21-year-old co-ed at Agnes Scott College in 1969 when she met the man destined to be her husband, 21-year-old engineering student Earl Robertson. Now, it's 1969, so naturally our minds would go to Woodstock, free love, flower children, but this was the South. They were both from Georgia, and this couple could have been a love match from the 1950s. They were not your, like, wild, swinging, protesting Vietnam-type kiddos in college. Not everyone can be in the same decade. Yeah, they really were in a different decade, it felt like. (laughs) Earl was top of his class at the Georgia Institute of Technology, while Terry's talents were more social. It's a cute little opposites attract situation here. He was shy and really, really smart while she was the life of the party. And you can really tell that this couple was very smitten. Earl proposed on Valentine's Day in 1970 after only a few months of dating And they were married that August after they had both graduated from college. So they're the same age. And their wedding pictures are very cute. You can see their personalities kind of in the wedding pictures because Earl looks really happy, but he's got this kind of like quiet smile on. And Terry has this big beaming smile. Like her energy just comes out from the photo. So Earl went to work for a company called Spring Industries, and he would end up climbing the corporate ladder there, and he was working there just about as long as he was married to Terry, which was three decades. And this is how you can tell that this is very much a different era, is because this was a time in the world where there was such a thing as a company man still. Yeah. It's like you get a job right out of college, and you stay with that company, and you work your way up the ladder, and you get a great pension when you retire, and they take care of your family. And this is the world that Terry and Earl are living in. They ended up moving around a little bit as Spring Industries got more companies, acquired more businesses. Sometimes Earl and Terry would be sent to those places so Earl could get the offices up and running, which was a little hard on Terry because she was from a military background. Her father was a colonel, and she hadn't loved growing up moving all around. So when they got the opportunity to go back to Rock Hill, South Carolina and settle down there, she was really happy and they made a lot of very close lifelong friends in the community. Yeah. I'd imagine like having that lifestyle growing up, that's not realistically what you would want to do. Yeah. I think a lot of her social butterflyness was learned because every time they went to a new place, she started a new school. She had to really put herself out there to make new friends. And as much as it had benefited her in some ways because she has such a glowing personality, I think she didn't want her kids to be forced into that sort of lifestyle, always moving, not having a home base, always being the new kid. On November 17th, 1973, their first child was born. It was a son named James Desjarnettes Robertson in honor of Terry's colonel father. Two years later, they'd welcome a second son and last child, Earl Jr., who they would call Chip. 
so yeah, we got Jimmy and Chip, Chip off the old block, Earl Jr. over here. So Earl Sr. was extremely hardworking. He was very dedicated to the company, very dedicated to his career. He was very well liked within the company. He was said to be the first in and the last to leave at the office. He was always 30 minutes early for everything. He was just super duper responsible. Terry was the primary parent and she put her heart and soul into her boys. Terry volunteered for several organizations and was the president of the PTA for quite a while. And she was said to be very, very committed to the PTA. They said previous presidents would do one major fundraiser or event per year. And Terry would do something like seven. Like every other month. Yeah. She was going a little overboard to the point where she was known sometimes to stay up all night, like working on projects and figuring out stuff. Like it was a lot. Terry was doing a little too much here. Both Jimmy and Chip were very, very smart boys. But Jimmy especially seemed to have some interpersonal issues. He didn't really get along with other students, and he seemed to have an authority problem. He didn't really get along with other teachers as well, even though he was so naturally bright and gifted. And though it was clear to everyone that Terry was a fantastic mother, very giving, loving, involved in everything her kids got involved with, there was also a blind spot when it came to her kids. So this was the type of parent that I'm sure teachers loathe, which is when you're trying to communicate with them about a real issue with their child, they just refuse to see it. Yeah, it's not benefiting anyone. It's not benefiting the kid. Being denial about what's going on, that doesn't help anyone in this situation. And unfortunately, even though Terry was an otherwise lovely woman who got along with people very well, if anyone said anything, even in a constructive criticism way about her sons in a bad light, she would mama bear and shut it down aggressively. Yeah. It also seems like she wasn't allowing her sons to take responsibility for their own actions because there was a story in the book that I read about how this one teacher had caught Jimmy cheating, but he wasn't cheating. He was allowing somebody else to cheat off of him because he's that smart. But this was like, another thing on a long line of him basically like flouting authority and just doing whatever he wanted. And so the teacher had punished him by having him clean the bathrooms. That was his punishment, which is weird. But yeah, this is also like back in the 80s. So life was different back then. (laughs) I think some of our older listeners could attest to that probably. I don't think any school would make a child clean the bathroom as a punishment. I mean, I was listening to a last podcast on the left episode and Marcus Parks, who is from Texas, was talking about how as recently as high school, he was still getting spanked. And he like graduated in 2000, I think. Oh my God. Yeah. By his parents or teachers? No, no, no. By his teachers. (laughs) Teachers. By his teachers? Teachers. What? Yes. Teachers. Well, like I said, not everyone can live in the same decade. That's exactly true. Yes, true. (laughs) So she ended up going to the school, getting angry at the teacher. The teacher's like, hey, if you keep this up and not disciplining your kid, he's going to end up in jail or worse because you are not holding him responsible for anything. And she just told him he was wrong. And then she cleaned the bathroom for him. Oh, no, Terry. I know. Terry. And what was he doing? Like reading a magazine? I have no idea what he was doing. I just know that this teacher was like, that was my first indication that something was going to go wrong in this relationship. 
Yeah. While Jimmy grew out of control, he started experimenting with drugs and alcohol and continuing to behave disrespectfully towards his parents and other authority figures. He did still manage to achieve on paper. I think he was just naturally very intelligent. He became an Eagle Scout, which is hard to do. He was accepted to a prestigious four-week program for exceptional students of science and math. He also earned a scholarship that paid for a year of study in Germany his junior year of high school. Wow. Okay. He would later say that the time he spent in Germany was the best 11 months of his life. He drank Jägermeister like it was going out of style. He was close enough to a legal drinking age in Germany that he was just going out and getting shit-faced constantly. And... Even though he did end up getting accepted and he did eventually enroll at Georgia Tech like his father before him, this was kind of the slow slide into Jimmy's descent was starting in Germany when he had this freedom. And I think some substance abuse issues began that junior year. Okay. And then it just kept rolling into college. By the end of the fall of his sophomore year in college, Jimmy had an abysmal GPA of 1.31. I feel like that would be hard to get. Like, you just never go to class, I guess. He was failing out of almost everything except for, like, a psych course, which is not what you're at Georgia Tech to do, really. You're there for the engineering, for the most part, and math and sciences. And it was extremely embarrassing for Earl because he had graduated number one in his class. There were some similar professors or people that he had been students with that now were professors. So he was well-known. He was a well-known alumnus. And he had been so excited for his son to follow in his footsteps and introduced him to everyone. So for this just massive crash to happen was so bewildering to his parents. It was not great. Jimmy was not only failing all of his classes, he was growing addicted to drugs and alcohol. He also picked up a nasty gambling habit. He was apparently losing up to $1,000 a sitting playing video poker. That's also 1994 money, so that's more like two grand a sitting. And a sitting you could do like multiple times a day or? I mean, I'm assuming you can. I knew somebody back when I worked at Sansi I worked with who had gotten themselves in a huge hole doing video poker. Yeah, I knew some video poker people too. It's so risky. Yeah. His parents tried to staunch the flow of money to him, essentially, to make sure he didn't have the money to buy the drugs and alcohol to play the video poker. And in response, he would steal their checkbooks and make out checks to himself. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is just completely out of control. At this point, Terry and Earl's marriage was being ripped apart because of what was going on with Jimmy. Because, of course, Terry had a very protective instinct and she did not want to let him completely fall by the wayside. Meanwhile, Earl wanted tough love. He wanted to cut him off completely and say, you're out there. Go get a job in a restaurant or wherever you can get a job and support yourself. And when you feel like you can commit yourself to your studies, then come back. So Terry's thinking... Letting him hit rock bottom is not what he needs. He needs counseling. He needs support, which is true to a point. And Earl's point was he's not going to hit rock bottom if we keep bailing him out. Yeah. And they're arguing about this, about what's – I mean, I think on Earl's side, you can say enough is enough. Like, we've 
coddled him so much and I've allowed you to be the main parent in this situation because I'm always working, but this is the result. This is how he's behaving now. And th that also put a lot on Terry making her feel like since she was the primary parent in the situation, she had screwed up somehow. Seems like the things that she did, though, when he was in high school weren't really benefiting him in any way. No. I think letting him off the hook was not the right choice. Oh, my gosh. I am not looking forward to the more complex situations. But it's insane how even the way you begin to have boundaries and teachable moments and lessons, even as a toddler, go all the way up. It's like the building blocks now of like basic respect and how we treat people with kindness and how we speak to one another. And those are like the little building blocks that get you to a point where you can have a responsible, respectful teenager and hopefully someday a successful adult. But it's so stressful. It's just stressful all around. Yeah. I don't think we had a lot of that education though back in the 80s. No, back in the 80s, there wasn't a lot. Like my mom had on her bookshelf how to raise the difficult child, which was me and not John. <laughs> she was like, at one point when I got older, I was like, wow, it must have been really hard to be a parent, huh? And she was like, look at my bookshelf. And I was like, wow, John was such a handful. And she's like, no, those were for you. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, what are you talking about? I was an angel. I don't know what you're referring to. Uh, still happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So they did get Jimmy to see a psychiatrist. And in August of 1994, Jimmy was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And he was prescribed lithium, but he didn't always take his medication. It was one of those things where he just felt like it wasn't effective. So he would just stop and then he would just lie about taking it because he just didn't think it was doing anything for him anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to see on yourself, I think, if something's working all the time. Yes. And I'm not entirely sure if I think he was still at school at this point because he started taking it in August of 1994. And I don't think it was until the end of the 94 semester, that fall semester, that he got kicked out of school. So it's not like his parents were with him able to monitor if he was taking his medication or not. And even worse, he began abusing his little brother's ADD medication. So Chip did have attention deficit disorder and he was prescribed Ritalin. And I'm not sure. Chip and Jimmy were really close, so Chip might have just given it to him. It's not entirely clear how he got Chip's medication, but he started crushing up his Ritalin and snorting it. No, that's really abusing it. Yeah. Now, at this point, Chip was doing very well academically himself. So while Jimmy is having all these problems, even though Chip has overcome ADD, He's doing great. He was accepted to UPenn. He is going to an Ivy League university. He was working towards a business degree. But Chip also was battling some substance abuse issues as well. It seemed like this might have been something that was hereditary. I don't know if he was introduced to it by his older brother. But even so, in the shows that I watched, it seemed like even though Jimmy was older than Chip, Chip was kind of more of the leader of the brothers. So it's it's unclear, like, what influence was Jimmy's, what was Chip's own doing, because he was a very strong individual, apparently. It's just really hard to understand, like, everything that was going on in this family, because it definitely did seem like the family gave the guys everything. They had their own, like, apartment, but yet, and they're both, like, they were, at least Jimmy was in high school, they were performing well, like, academically, 
But behind closed doors, it looks like there was a lot of issues going on. Yeah, I mean, it's always hard. You do such a great job of, like, dissecting all of that, but we, like, never really know. We never really know all of the ins and outs of the family dynamic here. So even after Earl eventually did cut Jimmy off, he was still allowed to live with them. So he, they paid for his insurance. They paid for his, like, phone bill and his gas money. But he was supposed to be getting a job and paying them rent, which he did do. So he started working in a restaurant. He continued to see his psychiatrist, which is great. And then there would be these periods where he was taking his medication, he was working, and things seemed to be on an upswing. But then something would happen, and then there would be a bad spell once again. By August of 1995, Jimmy had managed to get three DUIs in only six weeks' time. How is that even possible? I don't know. I mean, you're not supposed to be driving, I would imagine, after the first one. Well, towards the end of that month, Terry asked Jimmy for the rent money that he was supposed to be paying. I'm proud of her for doing that. Yeah. As she was finally putting her foot down, and Jimmy just, like, went off like crazy. I'm not sure if she was physically accosted, but the way he blew up at her was enough that she was afraid for her life. And she called the police. The police asked if she wanted him arrested if she wanted to press charges. And she just could not imagine what good that would do, him sitting in prison. So she asked if they would take him to a mental hospital for an involuntary hold because she thought that that would benefit him more greatly, which, I mean, I would think the same thing, even as an outsider. Yeah. And also, though, like, I'm shocked that they didn't put him in jail for the third DUI. I feel like normally for the, like, third DUI, even if it's a long, a long period of time, they usually put you. I mean, he'd probably spend a couple nights there, I would imagine. But It wasn't like considerable time if it was. It wasn't like a month or something like that. Yeah. The doctors at the mental health clinic found Jimmy to be passive aggressive, dependent, and antisocial with very poor emotional control. His bipolar diagnosis was confirmed, and he was also labeled as potentially having obsessive compulsive disorder and a severe alcohol dependence. Oh, man. Meanwhile, on the surface, Earl and Terry were acting like, Everything's a-okay. Everything's fine here. Nothing to see here. Some close friends knew about Jimmy failing out of college and some of the small difficulties, but nobody knew the extent of it. I don't even think they knew about the DUIs. They didn't know about the mental illness. This was very much attempted to be hidden. And additionally, Terry was hiding her own secret In December of 1995, four months after her son had been admitted to the mental hospital, Terry checked herself into the same one. Terry was diagnosed with bipolar disorder herself as well as obsessive-compulsive disorder. So now we're seeing maybe genetically where there's a link here. I mean, it's really responsible to check herself in, too. I'm sure with what Jimmy was going through and how they were diagnosing him and saying these are the characteristics of his diagnoses, maybe she saw similarities. A lot of her life and patterns began to make sense, I think, after this. Because a lot of people, I feel like especially women, are very good at masking or figuring out ways around their various disorders or situations. And so very often that's why, especially with something like ADD or autism, women go undiagnosed for many years because There's just ways around it, I feel like. And that's basically what Terry had been doing. 
But everything makes more sense now when you think of her spending all night working on PTA projects, doing seven fundraisers and big projects instead of one. That would be during a manic phase where she felt like superwoman and she wanted to take on all this stuff and do all this stuff. But then there'd be like the other side of it where she would get very depressed, especially when she was thinking about what happened with her kids or where they were going and Jimmy, where she would just not be able to get out of bed for a couple days. And this also explains how Earl never quite understood because he is gone in the morning. And I think some part of him was probably avoiding what was going on at home, to be honest. He was leaving very early in the morning and he was coming home very late at night. A neighbor said that he left before he came out to get the newspaper. And a lot of times the neighbor was going to go to bed before he knew Earl was home. So he is gone most of the day. And everyone who worked with him said he was so hardworking. So he's not like running around. He's at work. But while he was doing that, a lot of time the house would just fall into complete disrepair. Like just Terry was unable to stay on top of it, stay on top of the housework, keep the kitchen clean, cook, all this stuff. So this is another problem between them. And I don't know exactly how understanding Earl was being about Terry's situation in this moment because I know it was kind of confounding to him that this was their deal. Like he's going to go and he's going to provide and she's going to keep the house. That was kind of their separation of how this marriage was going to work. And in some way, he felt like she wasn't holding up her end of the bargain, which was getting very frustrating. And her response was, and I think also this was because of her mental health issues, she was having some hallucinations. She was having some paranoid delusions. One of them was that Earl was being unfaithful to her. There's no evidence that he was. So it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility. But as far as I know, no one found any documented evidence or no one came forward that said that he was having some sort of an affair. But that didn't mean that Earl wasn't having his own crises. He eventually saw a counselor as well, as I think somebody in the situation should because he's going through a lot with his family members. And he also was clinically depressed. He just didn't know how his life had turned out this way. This was a situation where a guy is an engineer. He's worked hard his entire life. He worked hard in school. He worked hard at his job. And he was of the old school thinking that if you get up and you're first in and you're last to leave and you work hard and you provide a good life for your family, that everything is just going to fall into place. Yeah. Because that's what he was told. That's what a lot of us are told when we're little. The American dream. Exactly. You never take vacation. <laughs> you never take vacation. <laughs> yeah. And he also was like really good at budgeting and he didn't spend a lot of money and he just was very responsible in every way. And so watching his whole family life crumble around him, watching his son fail out of Georgia Tech after he graduated number one in his class was just mind-boggling to him. And I, I think that's probably why he was such a workaholic, because that was one area he could control. He couldn't control anything that was going on at home. Also, the marriage at this point had started getting bad when there was disciplinary issues in, like, the kids' teens and now going into their early 20s. And it just got worse. I mean, at, at one point, they're barely speaking. They have a non-existent sex life. He's feeling, trying to be understanding, but feeling resentful about the house, the kids, everything. It's just not a good situation at this point. 
in late July of 1996, the icing on the embarrassment cake for especially Earl, but both Earl and Terry, was when Jimmy was arrested after breaking into their next door neighbor's house. Andy, you are officially here on the East Coast for our wonderful Christmas tree fetching ceremony, which means hopefully cold weather, warm fires, and cozy clothes. Ooh, I am so excited to be here. Yes, and you know that as the weather gets colder, our self-care routines tend to change a little bit and even, dare I say, take a back seat. This year, though, I am all about feeling comfortable and confident in my cozy skin all year long. Absolutely. And when bundling up in cozy sweatpants and long socks, there's nothing like the smooth feeling of freshly shaved legs. Plus, as the weather gets colder, there's no pressure around being beach ready or shorts wearing ready or anything like that, which means that we just get to shave for ourselves. And I think that's the best. That's how it should always be. So if you're looking to up your shaving game, you must check out Athena Club's award-winning razor kit. It is truly the best on the market, and here's why. First, price. The Athena Club Razor Kit is an absolute steal at just $10. But don't let the price fool you. This razor packs a serious punch. It comes with a beautifully made handle and two extra five-blade cartridges that deliver an incredibly smooth shave every time. And here's another game changer. The Razor Kit also includes a magnetic hook. This means no more clutter in your shower, no more goopy blades, no more razor crashing down on your shower floor in the middle of the night. It's the little things, right? I mean, those can feel pretty big (laughs) sometimes. And of course, don't forget the quality of the shave. Athena Club's razor glides effortlessly thanks to those five precision-engineered blades. The blades are perfectly spaced out to let hair pass through with each stroke and you'll experience less irritation and less razor burn, which is always a win in my book because I have super sensitive skin. Yes, you do. And honestly, Jesse, even for me without super sensitive skin, my old razor just can't hold a candle. It used to get all goopy after a few uses and my legs were just feeling dry and patchy. Athena Club's razors have a water-activated serum that is just enough to soothe while shaving but never gets gunky on the blade. And they leave me feeling moisturized and super smooth. If you still think that all razors are created equal and haven't made the switch, you need to try Athena Club's razor kit. It's affordable and will keep you feeling confident in your own skin all season long. Ready to upgrade your shaving experience? Switch to the best razor on the market and show your skin you care with Athena Club. Head over to athenaclub.com and grab your razor kit today, or you can find Athena Club razors at your local Target, which is perfect. Plus, with your purchase of a razor kit and blade subscription on their site, you can try their Gentle Body Scrub for free with code LOVEMURDER at checkout for a limited time only. Gosh, we have so much run out of time that we didn't even get a chance to talk about how amazing that scrub is. It's heavenly. Just pick a plan for your razor kit, begin checkout, and add the code LOVEMURDER before placing your order to automatically add a body scrub to your shipment. Trust me, you won't look back. Happy shaving! Oh, hey there, lovers. A fun fact about me that you all definitely already know is that my dad is a dentist. If you are playing along to the drinking game, this is when you drink for me mentioning that. And for a very short period of time, I even was his de facto office manager. Jesse, I had no idea your dad was a dentist. (laughs) 
But for real now, though, he does really love being a dentist. It's his passion. That's why he's almost 77 years old and he refuses to retire. And he's very committed to all the latest in research and new technology around being a dentist. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about today's sponsor, Biome, and their awesome Knobs toothpaste tablets. This is a totally new take on toothpaste and dentist dad approved. Knobs toothpaste was formulated by a dentist to provide a minimalist toothpaste without sacrificing on efficacy. Just 13 ingredients and no BS. It's that simple. On top of that, most fluoride-free toothpaste do not include a remineralizing agent. Knobs, get it? No BS, is formulated with the safest remineralizing agent alternative to fluoride and super gentle polishing ingredients. Also, they really think differently about every part of the company. For example, there's no plastic tube. Everything comes in glass jars. Plus, because Knobs isn't considered a liquid, no more having your toothpaste chucked out by the TSA when you travel. I also have to say that it looks really cute on a vanity. It does. It really does. As far as like when you have like a tube of crusty old toothpaste out on your countertop in your bathroom versus like how adorable the little Knobs glass jar is. It's definitely cleaner and more sustainable. In every way. Listeners can enjoy 15% off your first one month supply of Knobs. Go to betterbiome.com slash lovemurder. That's betterbiome.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder. He was stealing like VHS and other electronics, anything of value. And I guess he'd gone in once and successfully ripped them off and he was caught going in a second time. And they found items that belonged to the neighbor in his possession. They also found out through this arrest that Jimmy had been smoking crack and that Chip, who was home from UPenn, was also doing drugs at that point. So their successful younger son is also doing drugs at this point. I don't know if it was crack, but it was he was working his way up the ladder just like Jimmy had. Chip off that old block, too. Unfortunately, yes. So Jimmy was sent to prison for what ended up being, I think, 10 or 11 months He had been sentenced to six years, and he ended up serving 10 or 11 months. I mean, think about it, too. He has all this record of all those DUIs. It's not a good record for a kid. And, like, violence towards mom. Exactly. So, I mean, on one hand, when he was in prison, he did get mental health counseling. He was also a member of NA, Narcotics Anonymous. So he seemed to start getting a handle on some of his issues. But... The parents, Terry and Earl, were deeply ashamed. This was now a problem that they would not be able to hide. They could not look their neighbors in the eye. They're close neighbors, too. This is like a a little suburban neighborhood. So it's the type of place where you go out to get your paper and you're waving hi to your neighbors. Like my neighborhood. Yes, exactly. Like you can't really (laughs) avoid it. And so they're deeply embarrassed. And They're already in a bad space emotionally and mentally, and they start isolating themselves because they're embarrassed and they're ashamed. (sighs) So Terry was growing anxious about even going to the grocery store. She was afraid of running into people that she knew. She was afraid of who knew. She started to become agoraphobic. Yes, and Earl was also the type who had always socialized around work, and he was known as a friendly guy. 
And he started just going to work and closing himself in his office and not talking to anyone. They stopped going to church. They stopped going to some of the regular social functions because they didn't want to answer questions or face any judgment from the community. So obviously, isolating themselves in this time of need and darkness is not going to work. This is not what you need. You need more outreach. You need more understanding friends. And luckily, Terry did have some of those people. But I think it's kind of why at the beginning, her friend was so willing to get in the car and drive over and see because there were these dark spots in their life. I feel bad for Terry in this situation, too, because she really, really went down a spiral of questioning every parenting choice she had ever made, questioning herself, asking, like, what had she done? The things that she thought were benefiting her children had clearly not worked. And there was a lot of guilt and shame associated with what was happening with Jimmy, whereas for Earl, there seemed to be more embarrassment and resentment. He was resentful about the fact that he could not look his next-door neighbor in the eye. He was resentful that he had to go visit his son in prison, which it wasn't exactly close to where they lived. It was a whole thing. And he didn't even really want to go because he was so mad about everything that had happened. But of course, Terry wanted to show support. He was not feeling great about his whole family life at this point. When Jimmy was released from prison in late July of 1997, he put his foot down and he demanded at that point that Jimmy find his own place to live. He's not living with them. So, I mean, he did still pay for the first month in the security deposit on the apartment that Jimmy eventually found with a roommate. But he's like, you're not in our house. You're not wrecking our marriage again. So Jimmy got a job at the food court at Winthrop University. And it was there that he reconnected with an 18-year-old girl named Meredith Moon. Wow. Yes, it's a great name. Meredith was best friends with a girl, also with a great name, named Aaron Savage. Wow. Some great names over here. And Aaron and Jimmy had dated, I think, on and off for a couple years before Jimmy went to prison. But before he went to prison, I think that they had tried to break up or she had tried to break up with him and he became obsessive. And he started obsessively calling her. He also tried to call her from jail. And her parents put the kibosh on it. They were like, absolutely, don't call here. You're not seeing her. She's not seeing you. We are putting our foot down here. This is not happening. But unfortunately for Meredith, she did not have the same type of parental oversight. Meredith's parents had divorced when she was in seventh grade. Her dad was an over-the-road truck driver, and the time spent away from one another in the relationship had caused a rift in the marriage. So it, it seems like it was one of these, nobody's at fault. Nobody cheated. Nobody did anything horrible. It just was that the time spent away from one another had caused the two parents to develop just separate lives. So they had a not acrimonious split. It was a fairly good split. And it looks like Meredith stayed with her mom for about a year after the split. But then when she was entering high school, she wanted to live with her dad. Now, her mother had been previously married and she had two sons from that marriage. So Meredith has two half-brothers that are a lot older than her. They were 10 and 12 when she was born. So I think by the time the divorce happened, she felt really alone. Both of her brothers were out of the home. They were growing up. So they are kind of launched. And her dad was never really around anyway. She, I don't think she was getting along with her mom at that point. 
she felt alone. And it did not help that Meredith was a very large girl and she was bullied horribly at school. She was, at the time of being 18, when she reconnected with Jimmy, she was six feet tall and almost 300 pounds. Six feet tall, too. Crazy. It's not just somebody who is like... She's just a big person. She's just a large Viking-esque woman. Let's just say that. She's just a larger person. And people are cruel, especially back in the 80s and early 90s. People were horrible. Every reason to try to make fun of someone. Oh, anything. Absolutely anything. Dan is still like, when we were naming our daughter, he was like, we didn't know if we were having what gender we were having. And he was like, Anytime I'd say a name, he'd think of, like, a way that someone would make fun of it because of, like, growing up in South Boston in the 80s. He was like, any name that, like, you can make fun of, we can't name. I mean, luckily for everyone, we all started naming our children absolutely ridiculous things. So there's no such thing as a weird name anyway. I feel like that started in, like, the 2000s. Yeah, we just all – we were all bullied, so we're like, whatever, get a cool name. Gwyneth Paltrow naming her kid Apple. We were like, (laughs) all right. All right, it's over. You can name your kids whatever you want. If they make fun of one apple, they're going to have to make fun of the whole bunch. (laughs) And now she's like a Chanel model. (laughs) Yeah. So how do you like them apples? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Meredith was having a very hard time, and she decided to move in with her dad, which was in Rock Hill, South Carolina, where this is set. But at the time, her dad was still an over-the-road truck driver, so she was living in a rented room with a woman who worked for the trucking company for most of the time. Yeah, so like living with her dad. Yeah, so that somebody could keep an eye on her. And I think that this is where she started kind of a double life because Meredith, just like Jimmy, was very naturally intelligent. She... Despite everything she'd gone through and the bullying, she was an honor student. She got fantastic grades. She was on the leadership track in the ROTC. So she was doing well academically, but without parental oversight, she also started to slip into drinking and drugs and having sex with boys. And it was it was like the boy thing was not, we've talked a lot about people, even last episode, where some of the girls go through something hard with their parents and they get a little boy crazy in a way that they're looking for something, some sort of security or romance. That wasn't Meredith's case. She just wasn't really like looking for a romantic partner, but she was probably a little happy for the attention. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It would just slide into something that was sexual. She said more than anything, it was usually involving drugs, and she liked the drugs more than the boys. Okay. And I think that she had a reputation of being the big girl. That's what she was bullied for. And when she started to smoke a lot of pot, she kind of became more of Meredith the burnout than Meredith the big girl that we make fun of. And she liked having that reputation. So her dad did unfortunately have a heart attack, but that kept him off the road. So they eventually did move into a condo together and he was at home more, but she had already kind of established her own secret life going on. And I think they had a great relationship, the two of them, but he gave her a lot of leeway because I don't know if he knew exactly how to be a parent. Yeah, of course. He was on the road all the time. He was on the road all the time. So he wanted to give her the space. And how old is she at this time? 17? She's like 16, 17, 18. Yeah, She's getting good grades. So he's like looking at those report cards being like, you know what? I'm going to let her keep doing what she's doing because it seems like it's working. 
But she said later to author Lynn Riddle that by her senior year, she was high every single day. She said, quote, my eyes would be all red and people would say, oh, check out Meredith. She's high again. And I liked it. She liked that being her identity rather than being made fun of for physical attributes. Of course. I feel like at that time, too, it's like being a stoner would be way cooler than someone making fun of something physical about you that you can't change. You can at least control the fact that you're like getting high every day. Also, this is like very much the same era as Clueless when Clueless came out. And there was like a whole category in the high school echelons of the stoners. Remember, there was like the stoner group and belonging to the stoner group is better than belonging to the nothing, the loser group, whatever it was that she felt like she was getting out of and getting into something else. Yeah, they still have a clique. The stoners have a clique. Wasn't it Dion's boyfriend was part of the stoner group? No, it was um, Brittany Murphy's boyfriend. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the skater, the skater guy. Yeah, yeah. Breckenmeyer. <laughs> so Meredith was recently graduated from high school, but she really didn't have a ton of very close friends or much interest outside of smoking pot when she began to get close to Jimmy. So she had Aaron, but it didn't sound like other than that, she had that large group of pot smoking clique that we were just talking about. So when she started getting close to Jimmy, the two of them formed a very, very close codependent relationship extremely quickly because he has that dependence issue, that codependence issue as well. And Meredith basically moved into the apartment that Jimmy shared with a roommate after he got out of prison. She was just there almost every night. She would even like go home sometimes and be with her dad and then like leave in the middle of the night and spend the night with Jimmy. She was 100% crazy in love with Jimmy, despite the fact that he was 24 to her 18. And he had zero prospects as far as what he wanted to do with his life if he was going to go back to get an education. He already had a criminal record. But she thought he was just really smart. She loved talking to him. She thought he was brilliant. And at that time, her interests were mostly limited to drinking and smoking. And that's what he liked to do. It's less clear what Jimmy loved about Meredith, but what I I would speculate was the attention, the almost worshipful attention. He could control so little of his own life. He was also coming off a stint in prison where he had zero control over his life. And Meredith was young and impressionable. She was naive. And even though she was a large, like, This comes up later on, like, that they think, like, Meredith could somehow stop him because she was a larger woman. But that's ridiculous. Oh, my God. Stop. Yeah. We'll get into that. But she was very impressionable. And I think that that he had complete control over Meredith. And there was no one in their way. His ex-girlfriend, her parents put a stop to their relationship. And... With Meredith, I mean, she was 18 now, and her parents hadn't really controlled her for a long time anyway. So it was like this was just gangbusters. Like she could just be there for him at any point. He always knew where she was. She always wanted to be with him. And he felt deeply misunderstood and very let down by his parents. But he could do no wrong in Meredith's eyes. Yeah, I feel like it's – they're both – fulfilling something that they each need, but it's really toxic. It's very unhealthy. So the fog very momentarily lifted for the Robertsons, the elder Robertsons, in fall of 1997. Terry had been in treatment for over a year at that point, and she began to come out of her depression. Chip was back in school. He was back at UPenn. Jimmy was living on his 
own and he was holding down a job and I think he was doing a good job of it because they said that he was very responsible. He showed up for his shift on time. There was like one month that he worked like 27 days in a row when other people called out. So they're thinking we are finally on the road to recovery here. Maybe these were just growing pains, early blips that happen to teenagers and kids in their early 20s. It happens. And Earl was still grappling with his own feelings of resentment and frustration, but Terry seemed to begin making a more concerted effort to get the marriage back on track. So she had also gained a lot of weight in a short amount of time. She'd gained 80 pounds in less than two years. Could that be from medication as well, though? It might have had something to do with the medication. It might have had something to do with just in general the depression. And so this was also contributing to her mental state. But they took this romantic trip to New Hampshire's White Mountains in September. And it seemed like they were really coming out of it because she let Earl take pictures of her. They seemed like they were having a good time. She wasn't like hiding herself or her body. She was smiling. It seemed like they had a really, really wonderful time. But all the goodwill accrued on that vacation was for naught. Because the very next month in October... Earl visited Chip in Philadelphia and discovered that his alcoholism had gotten so bad that Chip hadn't been to class in more than two weeks. Whoa. And that's supposed to be the successful son. So Earl was straight out of empathy at this point. He was pissed. He was furious. He just could not believe that both of his sons were going to be dropouts, essentially. I also, yeah, couldn't imagine how, I mean, school's, ridiculous now to go to, but I'm sure back then it was still comparatively expensive. Yes. And he's going to, you said it was UPenn? UPenn, yeah. Yep, out of state. And Ivy League. Yeah. University prices. The first few years are definitely always paying at least the tuition and the, where they live and their food. I mean, it's just, I would be fuming. He was furious. And Chip did have time to get it back on track because he didn't have the same track record that Jimmy had had by the time he was kicked out of Georgia Tech. So he's like, you get your shit together. And I guess at this point, Terry and Earl had already tried to get Chip in a 12-step program. But I think it had been a losing battle, obviously. So he's like, you're going to get your shit together and you're going to turn this around because he still had time. I think that Chip had mostly been doing well at school until this point. So he's staying at UPenn until Thanksgiving, and they're going to have another discussion, obviously, when he comes home for the holiday. In November of 1997, though, things continued to get worse. 24-year-old Jimmy was kicked out of his apartment. His roommate was getting very alarmed about the excessive drinking and drug use. I guess Meredith collapsed in their home after drinking an entire bottle of Jägermeister. Oh, my goodness. They were worried about her dying of alcohol poisoning. The roommate was, I think, a little older. He's, like, also, like, a 24, 25-year-old guy, I'm pretty sure. And he was like, no, 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 no. Not, like, an 18-year-old girl is not dying in my house with God knows what kind of drugs in her system. Could you imagine? I honestly cannot. I would be so stressed out. Imagine us when we were, like, running around in our early 20s and somebody having this type of situation going on in our house. So it was extremely stressful. And finally, with like an ex-convict too. Well, the roommate was a little scared to kick Jimmy out. And he finally, he got more scared to let Jimmy stay than kick him out is basically what it came down to. Yeah, exactly. That outweighed it. Yeah. And so he got the balls to say, you have to leave. I'm breaking the lease. 
we're done. He's moving out too because he doesn't want to be in that place if Jimmy's going to retaliate in some way. And so Jimmy was forced to move back in with his parents. So when everything looked like it was getting better, all of a sudden they find out Chip's actually not going to class and Jimmy's been kicked out of his apartment for excessive drinking and drug use. And now he has to live back in the basement. And Jimmy doesn't want to be there either. So nobody's happy about this situation. Earl thinks he's going crazy. Like, what is going on with my life? Of course, when there's problems with the boys, that creates problems in the marriage. So all of that getting the marriage back on track is kind of bulldozed again. So he at that point decided that he just had to get himself through the holidays, Earl. And then they would figure out how to get this family back on track. So it's like, we'll white knuckle it through Thanksgiving and Christmas. And then in January, we have to do some serious work as a family. Earl's mother was still alive at this point too. And he felt like she was being judgmental about his situation. So he feels like he's just getting it from all sides at this point. Earl did not know at this time though, that the family would not make it through the holidays. And in fact, only two members of the Robertson family would live to see Thanksgiving 1997 or any Thanksgiving ever again. Jesse, do you know what the best thing is about marrying the right person? Well, I can think of a few things, but I'm a lady, so I'm not sure if I should say. Yes, milady. <laughs> I was more so thinking the endless conversations. Oh, right. Yeah, that's definitely the best part. <laughs> and that's why we are so excited to share today's sponsor, Paired. It's a relationship app for couples. The way it works is you and your partner download the app, Pair together, and every day Paired gives you questions, quizzes, and games to have fun, stay connected, and deepen your conversations. We have really loved some of the questions about core memories and, Jesse, more than a few of which have happened when you've obviously been around. I know. We've gone through so many milestones together, including meeting and reconnecting, as it might be in your case, with the love of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> they also have really fun quizzes and games. Each day you get a quiz to play or question to answer, and you cannot see your partner's answer until you answer yourself. Some of the most popular couple games are Would You Rather and Love Languages. It's simple and often really hilarious. And some of the most popular quizzes are Saying Sorry or How's Your Sex Life? Whether you're just a few dates in or have been together a really long time, it's time to lighten the mood and have fun with your partner by using Paired. Head to Paired.com slash lovemurder to get a seven-day free trial and 25% off if you sign up for a subscription. Just head to P-A-I-R-E-D dot com slash lovemurder to sign up today. Connect with your partner every day using Paired. A happier relationship starts here. When it comes to living longer and living better, there's pretty much nothing more important than sleep. Poor sleep can cause weight gain, mood issues, and lower productivity. Yup, and sleeping less than six to seven hours per night is linked to reduced white blood cell count. White blood cells protect our body against illness and disease. They fight viruses, bacteria, and more. Sleep is just absolutely the foundation of our mental and physical health and largely dictates how we perform in our days. That's why for me, having a consistent nighttime routine is non-negotiable. For me, that routine involves time away from screens, self-care, and today's sponsor, Beam. We are so excited to introduce Beam Dream. It's basically health hot cocoa for sleep. 
Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. A recent clinical study revealed Dream helped 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed, and 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. I know I don't have all of the cool gadgets and devices that you have that help record (laughs) your sleep, but I know for me, just how I felt was remarkable after I took Beam. Yes, everything on my sleep app shows me every single time that if I miss a night, I just do not have the same quality worth of sleep. And it's crazy because I think that a lot of our listeners and you will remember back in the day, it used to be like, oh, sleep when I'm dead, like, you know work hard, play hard, never sleep. And now it's like, well, if you don't get some sleep, you are dead. We need sleep. Yeah. Sleep is very important. So great news. Today, our listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, their best-selling healthy hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious flavors like sea salt caramel, cinnamon cocoa, and chocolate peanut butter. Better sleep has never tasted better. Seriously, it must be made by wizards because I do not know how this is keto-friendly, but it is. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder for up to 40% off. We are back to the beginning with Debbie Brisson's horrific discovery. As you may recall, she was the office manager at the counseling center Terry volunteered at, and she became concerned when Terry had failed to pick up a coconut cake from a friend. As Debbie was driving over to the Robertsons, Earl's secretary was calling the police. Again, Earl had showed up every morning, first to arrive. He had actually scheduled a 8 a.m. meeting, an 8 a.m. meeting the previous week, he had already scheduled it. So when he didn't show up for that meeting, his secretary and his coworkers were very concerned. Yeah. I mean, when you have a track record of always being punctual and always being the first one to be there, if you don't show up one day after 30 years, it's like, what the actual fuck? It was a huge red flag for them. They said that that had never happened in 27 years. In fact, to you saying like never take vacation, he had never called in sick in 27 years. How? I do not know. This man was an animal. I mean, I think that he just really thought if you do everything right and if you dedicate yourself, everything will turn out all right. But it did not in his case. It's a very blissful way of living your life. Yeah. Like thinking that that's the reality. I feel like it's a lot of people want to believe that. If like I do the things that I'm supposed to do and my life should work out. And that's why it's such like cognitive dissonance when it doesn't. I know. That's a very, like, nice way of thinking that life exists. I definitely feel like I thought that for a long time in my youth. I liked doing everything right in school. I liked knowing what I had to do to get the great grades. I knew that if I did that and then I did this and then I did that, then boom, there was my life. And then I got to college and after and I was like, whoa, that's not the case. That way of thinking and that way of, like, learning how to complete tasks and learning how to be kind to people, like that definitely sets you up in the right direction for life though. So I don't think it's all for none at all. I just like as an adult to still have that belief system and to like, I don't want to say naive, but it feels like a little naive to me. I think it was self-preservation. Okay. 
I think that if he could be perfect in this one area that he could control, like that's whether or not he goes to work, whether or not he's on time, whether or not he does his job, then almost it was like his saving grace when everything else is burning down around him. He's the dog in the meme. Yeah. It's fine. But babe, it's okay that it's not sometimes. And it's really okay, you guys. The holidays can be very dark and depressing for many of you. And it's okay not to be fine. It's okay not to have some Pinterest-worthy freaking holiday. You can just order Chinese food and binge watch something and hopefully invite your best friend over. You don't need to have a whole thing. And not change out of sweatpants for like five days. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We are here for it. Yeah. So obviously Earl's secretary called the police because this is just – totally out of character. A patrol deputy had been sent out to check the Robertson's house to see if anything was obviously amiss. And this happened before Debbie arrived at the home. So he had knocked on the carport door and no one had answered. There was a dog inside. They had a pet. So the dog was barking, but not in anything that was out of place was just somebody knocking on the door. And then a neighbor, I think, was leaving for work at the same time. And he went over to the neighbor and said, hey, I'm checking on the Robertsons. Do you know where they are? And he said, well, his car's gone, so he's probably gone. He's like, but that guy leaves really early in the morning. He doesn't get home till really late. He's like, I'm assuming maybe he's just on his way to work or something because he's pretty reliable. So at that point, the patrol deputy was like, well, everything seems fine here. So he didn't go around the house or anything. So he just leaves. So he calls dispatch. He says, everything looks fine. Talk to the neighbor. I think everything's all right. So then dispatch called Earl's secretary and said, everything at the home looks fine. And she was like, no. Hey, guys, I don't think you know what's really going on. First of all, 27 years. Never been late a day in his life. This is not right. And also, you guys should really go back to the house because his son, who recently got out of prison, just moved back into the house and they have a contentious relationship. Wow. Okay. Thank goodness for her. Yeah. When the patrol officer heard that. He was like, oh, okay, that's new information. I'm going to go back and look. So while this is all going on, Debbie just pulls up to the house. So he was not there when she pulled up. He was like driving away because he thought everything was fine. And then he got the call to turn around. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So now Debbie's at the house. And like I described at the beginning, she tries to get in. She goes around back. She sees the glass. She goes in through the boy's apartment. She comes up the stairs. She opens the doors, the light floods in, she starts walking down the hallway, when all of a sudden she sees blood everywhere. It was all over the walls, it was all over the floor, and lying on the floor in his underwear was Earl Robertson, whose head has been bashed in so badly that his brains were coming out. Oh my God. Debbie started screaming, she's panicking, she ran to get to the phone. And there was a phone in Terry's room, which is where she'd been headed. So she ran to the bedroom to get the phone. And she sees that there's another person, a body. It's not a person who's walking around. It's another body. And somewhere psychically, she knows it's Terry, but she can't look at her because she already saw this horrible scene. no. She's like, I can't go any further because I can't see my friend like that if this is the same situation. So you can imagine the terror that this woman is feeling. She's in the home. There's definitely two people, definitely Earl and potentially her friend because it would make sense. It's her bedroom. Yeah, And is there anyone alive in there? She doesn't know. That's when she realizes that 
what did she do? Why did she walk in here? There's two people who have potentially been brutally murdered. And she doesn't know if the killer is still in the home. So she tries to get out at this point. She runs. And now she's not thinking because she could have run back down, obviously, the stairs to get outside. But she's panicking. So she runs first to try to get to the front door. But the front door has a deadbolt that requires a lock, even from the inside. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. I'm seeing her trying to open the front door. Yeah, so she's trying to pull. She's, she's screaming. She's trying to pull the front door open. She can't get the front door open. So she runs to the carport door that's off the kitchen. And that one is also deadbolted from inside. So she is now really panicking. The kitchen phone is off the hook. So this is why nobody could get a hold of them because they, she sees the kitchen phone. So she like hangs it up, picks it back up. She is so panicked. She actually calls her office. She calls her boss at the counseling center instead of 911 because she just doesn't know what to think. Of course. And yeah. her boss says, get off the phone, call 911 right away. So she was literally hanging up to call 911 when she saw the deputy come back. So he walks back over. She hasn't called anyone yet. And she's screaming. So she's like banging on the window. And she's screaming like, help me, help me. He's dead. He's dead. She's panicked. Now, the deputy hadn't seen the back of the house. So he doesn't know that there's a way for her to get out. So he literally like gestures for her to go down the house where there's a window. And he's like, go to this window, push it open, and I'll pull you out of the house. Because she's freaking out so badly. And that's what ended up happening. So this deputy now, I mean, she was just, even as he's pulling her out of the house through the window, she just can't stop screaming, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. Debbie didn't participate in the shows that I saw, but one of the neighbors did. I do not think it was the neighbor that was robbed. I think it was their other neighbor. And they said that it's impossible to have a Thanksgiving without thinking of this family. Of course. Yeah. I can't even imagine how Debbie must feel. Earl Robertson was indeed dead, as was his wife of 27 years, Terry. So sad. Detectives verified that Earl had been beaten with a blunt object. They didn't know what it was at this point. So badly that his head had been gouged in. His brains were exposed and coming out of his body. He also had bruise marks on his body that looked like a long pole situation, like maybe he had been also beat with a baseball bat, they surmised. So it looked like there had been potentially two weapons in the murder of Earl Robertson. And when they came to the bedroom, Terry had fallen between the bed and the wall, but it appeared that the attack had started in the bed because it was covered with blood. Terry had also been assaulted with some sort of blunt object that had fractured her skull. But the the larger issue that had likely killed her was that she had been brutally stabbed and slashed. There was a broken knife on the bed, and she was covered with countless stab and slash wounds. There was one cut, a defensive wound. She had obviously tried to put up her hands. And they said that she had been slashed from, like, her wrist to her elbow so deeply that the bone was exposed. Jessica. Yeah. So sorry, guys. It's just going to be a little gritty, these details. But I just want you to know the extent of these wounds. How passionate. Yeah. How passionate. How deep. That's very difficult to do, especially if somebody's fighting you. She had also been slit deeply from below one of her ears to under her chin. And there was a 
another deep slash that sliced open her face from her ear to her mouth. Jessica, uh, Jess. So the detective who worked the case was on one of the shows I watched, and he said that he had never at that point in his career, and he has never since ever seen a crime scene this bloody and this brutal and violent. One of the investigators said that Earl's head looked like a crushed tomato. So this is extremely violent. On the floor of the bedroom, authorities found Earl's wallet, and it appeared that the credit cards had been taken. That, paired with the broken window in the rear of the house, made investigators initially believe that they were looking at a burglary. But the amount of stab wounds and the sheer violence, yeah, which was just like, it was palpable anger at this scene, made them think that this was more than just a random robber who would hurt these people like this. That, and when they inspected the broken window in the back door, seems the murderer had made one very common blunder, which is, Andy... Breaking the glass on the wrong side. Exactly. You called that from the intro. It was actually my query on it was more based on me trying to figure out what the crime was going to be, not figuring out who did it. But that definitely is a huge no-no. Huge blunder. So now they're looking for Jimmy, who is obviously their number one suspect. So Jimmy had been supposed to pick up his grandmother, that's Earl's mother, that day to bring her back to the house where she would be staying with them for Thanksgiving. And he had not showed up at his grandmother's house. Investigators found a note on the kitchen table that read, Mom and Dad gone to get Chip in his car. Sorry, but he needs me right now. Love, Jim. Okay. Investigators subpoenaed the Robertson family phone records and put a trace on all of Earl's credit cards. They soon discovered that Jimmy had called Chip at 2.33 in the morning and that they had stayed on the phone for 34 minutes. And then he had called him again around 3.07 in the morning and they had spoken for three minutes. So they believe, based on that, that Jimmy was heading to Chip's Philadelphia apartment. So they immediately called the Philly police as well as the campus police to go to the apartment to get Chip, and also monitor the comings and goings. Yeah, also 30 minutes is a long fucking time. Yeah, 34 minutes to be talking at 2.30 in the morning. That's a long phone call. And he had basically just hung up with him when he called him back at 3.07, like they thought of something else. So they're also thinking right now, is Chip involved in this as well? Yep. They also discovered a car, it was a Honda Accord, parked the wrong way on the Robertson's lawns. Like essentially on the street, it's facing the wrong direction. And it's parked like up from the street, kind of like half on their lawn, half on the street. Nobody knows who this is. The neighbors do not know who this car belongs to. And they look into the registration and it's registered to Douglas Moon, Meredith's dad. Oh, shit. Okay. So they reached out to Douglas, and he said that Meredith had left basically middle of the night, but very early in the morning, because one of her girlfriends had broken a bone or hurt herself in some way, and she was going to be with her at the hospital, is what Meredith had told her father. A neighbor had also waved to Jimmy early that morning when he was getting into the car, which I think he, he was taking his father's car. And he spied a young blonde woman matching Meredith's description with Jimmy when they kind of shouted hi to one another. So she is definitely looking like 
an accomplice who is on the run with Jimmy now because neither of Meredith's parents nor her friend Aaron knew where she was at this point. It's not looking hot. Yeah, Aaron said that she thought maybe they had gone to Philadelphia to pick up Chip together. That was her best guess. But was Aaron actually at the hospital? No, that was a lie. Okay, okay. Yeah, so she was fine. It seems like that was a ruse to get out of the house to go be with Jimmy and do whatever they were doing. Yeah, just so you know, if I was in the hospital with a broken arm and you said you were coming to see me and you didn't, I'd be pissed. <laughs> Understandably so. But yeah, Aaron did not actually have a broken arm. Also, they must have an interesting relationship because I'd also probably tell you not to date my crazy ex-boyfriend. I don't know how that's all going. And the, the night before this, they'd all like hung out together and like snorted Ritalin together. And then Aaron had dropped Meredith back off at her house after they all hung out with Jimmy. Well, but if he was being kind of possessive of Aaron, I could see how she like wouldn't. Maybe she was like, they're better together because they both like fill each other's codependency. Yeah, you never know. It's always weird in friend groups. Some people are totally able to do that and some people are not. It doesn't mean it's unnatural, I guess, if everyone can be friends after they hook up, especially when you're in high school and your early 20s because what is hooking up? Yeah, everyone's always hooking up with everybody, so you wouldn't have any friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Except for you. Andy never hooked up with her friends. Yeah, I didn't really. I hooked up with one friend. Yeah, I think that's it. But in like in the entirety of your life. <laughs> yeah, and we're like so cool. <laughs> Uh, but everybody else we knew did. So they know now Meredith and Jimmy are on the run. They were able to trace their route to Philadelphia by the hits on Earl's visa card. So I don't know what they were doing using this card, whether they were just not thinking, whether they didn't realize that there would be surveillance cameras at these gas stations or, the, you know, they were maybe make, trying to make it look like the killer was using the cards, but this clearly wasn't going to work because... The first place that they stopped at was called the Peach Stand. I guess it was pretty close to where they live. And it's well known. It's kind of like one of those places that's more than just a gas station. They also sell fruit and preserves. And it's like more of a, it's kind of like that place when you're driving from LA to San Francisco. Yep. You're the crossover. Yeah. The Casa de Fruta. It sounds like it's something like that. I don't know for sure, but it sounds like where you can like stop and get out and like have other things to look at besides just pumping your gas. Exactly. So they stopped there. And not only were they caught on surveillance camera there, but also the clerk said that the two seemed, quote, as happy as a lark and were behaving more like they were on a date. So that's the first stop. They got a hit in Virginia as well. Meredith and Jimmy were caught there on surveillance camera using Earl's card again, buying snacks, getting gas. Well, they were busy chasing down those two, they also spoke to Jimmy's ex-roommate who said that Jimmy hated his parents and regularly spoke about his desire to kill them. He said that he had especially wanted to kill his father. Apparently, Earl, who had one joy in life, was playing golf, was planning on investing in or trying to maybe retire and use all of his savings to open his own golf course. Those were two dreams that he had. He had made this dream of his future clear, and I guess Jimmy was enraged because he believed that this would squander his inheritance. Oh, wow. Okay. Talk about entitled. Jimmy told friends that he had once poisoned his father's iced tea with cyanide, but he had pulled the glass back at the last minute. He had decided not to go through with it. He also had told multiple friends that he had fantasized about burning down his house with both of his parents in it. 
Okay, so he has said a lot of incriminating things up in here. Yes, yes, to a lot of people. In fact, he had also been watching TV with a friend and the friend's girlfriend at one point, and she later testifies that they were watching TV and there was some ad for a news program about the Menendez brothers. And he's like, oh, yeah, me and Chip are going to do that to my parents. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Or we want to do that to my parents or something along those lines, like that there was some desire to Menendez their parents. Alarming. Very alarming. Meanwhile, speaking of Chip, he was brought down to the Philadelphia police station and he was extremely tight-lipped about what he and Jimmy had talked about on the phone in the middle of the night for 34 minutes. They said that Chip was very suspect because he did not seem overly emotional about finding out that his parents were brutally murdered. Yeah, like he may have already known. Yeah, because I think that he had also received a call from a payphone while they were on their way. So he did not seem overly surprised. And he also had zero interest in helping them in any way. He was like, I don't know where my brother is. Nope, we didn't really. We just kind of shot the shit. They're like, you can't tell us anything you talked about. He's like, nope, I don't remember. So right away, they're suspicious of Chip, of course. And eventually, they were basically staking out Chip's place. Meredith and Jimmy, like, I guess they had come in to his place. They couldn't find him. Then they went out and got food. And when they pulled back in to go to Chip's apartment again, that's when they were surrounded by, like, a SWAT team. And they were yanked out of the car. They said Meredith was yanked out by her hair and arrested. Whoa. Yeah. After several hours of questioning, Meredith Moon broke. And after being Miranda'd, she confessed to everything she knew. So according to Meredith's account, here is what happened. Meredith was at home at 3.30 in the morning when Jimmy called her. So this is ostensibly after he has gotten off the phone with his brother. So they could have been talking about something innocent because this first phone call, she said she was still up because they had done a bunch of Ritalin, so she wasn't sleeping anyway. Oh, my God. He had first called to ask her if she could steal her mom's credit card so that Chip could buy a plane ticket or bus ticket home. He didn't have a way home for the Thanksgiving holiday. So it's entirely possible that maybe that was an innocent conversation if the first thing he's asking her is, can you help me get my brother home? She said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to steal my mom's money. You have a car. You figure it out. They hung up. So then he called her back right around 5 a.m., it looks like, or right before 5 a.m. And he said, okay, we're going to go get Chip, bring some traveling clothes, get your ass over here, and we're going to leave. So she's just assuming that they're going on a trip. And at that point, her father didn't even know she was dating Jimmy. So she will later say that she didn't want to worry her father. She didn't want to tell her father at almost five in the morning, like, hey, I'm going over to some guy's house you've never met, and then I'm going to go on a road trip with him. So she decided it was safer to just tell him there was an emergency and Aaron needed help rather than explain to him that she was going to her boyfriend he didn't know about's house and then traveling with him across state lines. So she left, she stopped and got some cigarettes, and then she got went over to Jimmy's house, and she went in his basement entrance. Now, she had never met Terry and Earl at this point. Aaron had met them only twice during the time they were dating, because most of Meredith's relationship with Jimmy had been conducted while he was living in the apartment. And then if they would come over, hang out, 
they would just use the entrance in the basement. So she had actually never met his parents at this point. That makes sense. Yeah. It's like literally their own apartment. Exactly. And when she arrived, that was when she realized that something was different. He told her right away he was very hyper. He said he was going to kill his parents. He's like, it's, it's happening tonight. I'm actually doing it. Now, Meredith said that Jimmy threatening to kill his parents or wanting to kill his parents was absolutely nothing new. So this was not a shocking statement. But what was shocking was that now it seemed like he had a plan. So now it seems like it's something he wants to act on. They had spoken about him killing his parents before, but it was kind of theoretical. Like he was saying, you know, I know that they have these life insurance policies. They're worth a ton of money. And in reality, the Robertsons at this point with their life insurance policies were worth $2.2 million. Whoa. Which is closer to $4.2 million in today's money. Whoa. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had saved his whole life and... Now he wanted to put a big chunk of that change into a golf course, and Meredith would say that Jimmy wasn't having that. So that morning when she showed up, he told Meredith that his dad got up at the same time every day. He's just a creature of habit. And from where he is in the basement, he can always hear his dad's alarm go off. So he said what he was going to do is when he heard the alarm go off and then his dad go down the hall and get in the shower, he was going to go up and attack his mom. This is kind of heartbreaking, too, because they had a bathroom, like, attached to their bedroom. But the reason why Earl went down the hall was so he wouldn't wake Terry up in the morning so that she could sleep in. So he would routinely shower in a shower down the hall to not disturb his wake wife's sleep. Yeah. So he said, I'm going to hear my dad get up. I'm going to hear him go down the hall. I'm going to hear the shower go on. And then I'm going to kill my mother. <sighs> so sick. And then when my father comes out, which is why he was also found with a towel next to him. So he was like basically in his briefs with a towel. He's going back to get dressed and then leave. He's going to surprise him and he's going to kill him then. So he tells Meredith that that's the plan. She did say she tried to dissuade him. She's like, this is crazy. You're not thinking straight. Don't do it. But he would not be dissuaded. But she doesn't leave. She said she was too, almost too scared to leave. She didn't know what to do. She didn't really necessarily, like some part of her, I think the part that's in denial, didn't want to believe it was going to actually happen. Yeah, especially if he's been mentioning it for... Long time. Yeah. It's like he's been saying shit like this for months, weeks, whatever. It's... And over the next like hour or so while they're waiting for the alarm to go off, she said that they crushed up a lot more Ritalin and did like six to ten lines each of more Ritalin. Jesse, stop. Yeah. So this is their probably tweaking out, I would imagine. So when she heard the alarm go off, Jimmy instructed her, because I think they'd been sitting in like the living room area downstairs. Jimmy instructed her to go into his room, sit on the couch he had in his room, shut the door, don't come out. So she did that. After the shower started running, she heard a horrible commotion from above. And she could tell that it was Jimmy attacking his mother. She heard Terry screaming for Earl, but... Earl could not hear her because he was in a shower that was noisy down the hall. Yeah. So sad. So he had no idea she was screaming for help at that point. And then these are things that will haunt Meredith for the rest of her life, she said. She heard Terry screaming, no, Jimmy, Jimmy, no. Which, as a mother, really is a heartbreaking statement because that means she knew it was her child killing her. 
which is just really hard because no matter how old your kid gets, you still see them as a baby. You see them as a toddler. You see them growing up. And so this vessel you had poured all of this love into is brutally murdering you right now. Yeah. No, it's unbelievable. I just truly can't imagine. What's the Greek tragedy? Is it Oedipus? Oedipus kills his father, I think, after accidentally sleeping with his mother. Yeah. So Meredith was so disturbed that she put her hands over her ears at this point. So she's trying to block out Terry's screams, but it's not working. It's loud. She can't block it out. So she ended up going outside on the patio and smoking a cigarette. So this is a point of contention later on with Jimmy's attorneys saying, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you get help? Why didn't you overpower him? Why were you just smoking a cigarette on the patio? And she said she was just frozen. She was just so frozen she didn't know what to do. She's a kid. Yeah, she's 18 years old. So she goes back in, goes back into his room. And at some point then he came and he whispered to her. So I think his father was still in the shower or he was like getting out of the shower or something because he's whispering now. And he asked her to get him a knife from the kitchen, from the downstairs kitchen. She said at that point she was in the kitchen and she was like, okay, just leave. And there was a, there's a kitchen door. It's the one I think that's later broken. And she's like, I'm just going to walk out of here. But the door was locked. Like it was the same as everyone else who's tried to get out of this house. So she's like, it was like this momentary, like instead of grabbing the knife, just open the door. But the door is locked. And so instead she just grabs the knife and gives it to him. So yeah, so she's literally an accomplice. Yes, she's now an accomplice. She took that knife and she handed it to Jimmy. So she said after that, she heard the shower stop running. And a little after it stopped, she heard a loud, repetitive thumping. So what Meredith didn't see was her boyfriend attacking his mother with both sides of a claw hammer and finishing the job with the knife that she gave him. And he had stabbed her with such ferocity that the blade broke. And then he had used the hammer as well as a baseball bat on his father. Ugh. Sick. When it was quiet upstairs, Jimmy finally returned. She said that he was covered head to toe in his parents' blood. And he was wearing a shirt that had a photo of himself on it for some reason. What? Yeah, like one of those superimposed like pictures people printed. I don't know why he had one. I don't know why it was just his face. I don't know why he wanted to wear that while he was killing his parents. Yeah. But that's what he was wearing, she said, because she could remember. And he took off all of his bloody clothes and they put them in a bag. Then he took a shower. Then he instructed her to clean up the scene, essentially putting socks over their hands and using Tilex to clean the bathroom where he had showered. And then they put everything in a bag together, the bloody clothes, the socks, the baseball bat, the hammer. After that, Jimmy broke the window with a rake. He did it from the wrong side, like we've talked about. And during the breaking of this window, he cut his hand. Some of the glass must have ended up on his hand. So she said the reason they stopped so close to where they lived for the first stop was because he needed a Band-Aid because his hand was bleeding. They did see the neighbor on the way out who reported it, and they act totally normal. And the neighbor said that too. They just were kind of like, hey, good morning. And at that point, Jimmy still thought they were going to get away with it because he thought that it could seem like they were attacked after he left. 
he didn't think anyone was going to find them. Well, they're literally superhuman because they've done so many uppers. Yes. So his brain is going a mile a minute. It was about 7.45 in the morning when they're now leaving the house. <sighs> so they're leaving the house. He said, I left the phone off the hook. Meredith doesn't seem to know how much Chip knows about this, if at all. But he said his plan was to drive all the way to Chip. They would pick Chip up. Obviously, he's going to tell Chip what happened either along the way or when they get Chip. And then he and Chip would drop Meredith off or like drop her at her car so she can leave. Which is parked in front of their house. I know. They're just not thinking, obviously. They're on a lot of drugs. And he said that he and Chip would discover their parents' bodies. And at that point, he had been on the road for so long that he didn't think that they were going to think it was him, apparently. She said along the way, they dumped the bag full of clothes and murder weapons. And one thing that she said he repeatedly said over and over again was, Chip's going to be so proud. Chip's going to be so proud of me. He also said that he was glad it was over. And he talked about on this 10-hour drive to Philadelphia, he talked about how he was going to use his money. He said he was going to use his share of the money to renovate a club in Rock Hill and he was going to run a club. Honey. <laughs> yeah, I know. Bad this news is for you. The only club you're running is the mess hall at the prison. So he said he did realize that something was wrong when they stopped at one of these stops and he tried to call his own house and it went to the answering machine or the voicemail. Yep, because people had already discovered. Because people had discovered it and somebody had replaced the receiver. So he's like, oh, fuck. So that's not good. But he's still in like Ritalin land. So he's probably thinking it's going to be fine somehow. It's going to be great. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So many drugs. Yes. He just had not counted on so many people loving his parents. He really thought that somehow no one was going to call the police because it was going to take them two days minimum to go all the way to Philadelphia, get Chip, and come back. He didn't think in two days anyone was going to look for them. That's how solipsistic and egomaniacal he is, so self-centered that he can't imagine that anyone cares about his parents that much. Yeah. It didn't even occur to them. He was 100% convinced that he and Chip would be the ones to, quote, discover the bodies. So Meredith and Jimmy were obviously arrested immediately. Meredith would eventually secure a plea deal. She gave the police the location of the dumpster where they had dumped the bag with the murder weapons and Jimmy's bloody clothes. And thankfully, the trash had not been picked up yet. So they recovered the bag. And the police were able to have so much forensic evidence from that. And I mean, also the murder shirt has his face yes, on it. It's just it's like unreal. What are you thinking? That's a very poor choice of murder apparel. I mean he clearly wasn't thinking. He clearly wasn't. I mean I really think that just in general, even if you're not murdering, maybe don't go around with a shirt with your face on it. Yeah. <laughs> It's giving egomaniac. It definitely is. That's just a strange thing to be wearing in general. But definitely if you're planning on murdering people and then just disposing of a bloody shirt with your face on it. Wow. That has to go up in the Hall of Fame. Of dumbest criminals. Yeah. Yeah. So. Hall of shame, rather. Hall of shame. Yes. Meredith eventually did plead guilty to two counts of accessory to murder after the fact and armed robbery, which I, she doesn't think she deserves it. I really don't think she deserved armed robbery either. It was based on the fact that he took their credit cards and used them. 
And they said that they could get her for that because she's using his credit cards in the surveillance footage. So she did not get a good plea deal. I have to tell you that much. She received a 20-year sentence with parole possible after seven and a half. So that was the deal that was struck. Okay. So I think that's that's not one of these lenient type deals that we've seen. I think that they probably thought that the evidence was so overwhelming even without her testimony that they didn't need her that much. So therefore, they didn't have to offer her a huge deal. And she did really hand him the knife. Yes. So she would have to testify against him. And he would not be so lucky. James Jimmy Robertson was going to be facing the death penalty. Chip Robertson was never charged with any crimes involving his parents' murder. But everyone has always given Chip a big old side eye about this. Really? Okay. Yes. He was always kind of considered a suspect, even though they could find no hard evidence that he was connected in any way. He inherited the entirety of his parents' estate. He ended up dropping out of college. And he reportedly threw a New Year's rager at his parents' house, and there was still blood on the walls when he did this. What? The house was not forensically cleaned until February, and partygoers said that the main party was in the downstairs level, but people were able to walk upstairs, and there was still blood on the walls. Oh, my God. So yeah, people thought that that was obviously very screwed up. Chip also stood by his brother. So he got him a really good defense attorney too. So all of these things combined with the things that Jimmy had said made people believe that maybe they were in cahoots, but we don't know. There's no evidence. Jimmy's trial began in March of 1999, and it was covered by Court TV. Even though the book I used was like, as seen on Court TV. The prosecution presented a case of a greedy, spoiled delinquent who had ruined his parents' lives while they were alive and then ended them brutally. They argued that Jimmy didn't want his dad spending what he considered his money, his inheritance money. And so he decided to kill him and his mother to get his greedy little mitts on that money. They had plenty of forensic evidence, including the goddamn bloody shirt with his face on it. I mean, that just has to be the most unbelievable piece of evidence that we've maybe ever. Is overwhelming, the evidence, yes. And he had the cut on his finger. So all of this is corroborating Meredith's story. They're on the surveillance camera. They're using the credit cards. It just is pretty obvious what happened here. Meredith was, of course, the star witness. And it seemed like, honestly... This was a bad thing for her, obviously, having to go to jail, having to be a part of it. But she kind of blossomed in jail. She lost 100 pounds. So by the time she was showing up to testify, which is, I think, two, two and a half years after the murder, she looked like a different person. She looked like a more confident person. But it still did not take anything away from how scared she was to testify against him. He had sent her some really screwed up things, like when he found out she was going to testify against him, he wrote her a letter that was like, go fuck yourself, and like had some veiled threats in it. So she was a little nervous about him, and he apparently smirked at her while she was on the witness stand. And it was very, very hard for Meredith. She talks to author Lynn Riddle later about this, how they seem to make a big deal about how big she was, like how she could have, if this was all true, why didn't she stop Jimmy? She was so much bigger than him. 
And she said it felt like even less of trying to prove their client's innocence and more like they wanted to humiliate her. That's so mean. They brought up her weight loss for some reason. The defense attorney is – it was just not a great experience for anyone involved. It seemed needlessly unkind. Brian Robinson from Court TV wrote that during the guilt phase of the Robertson trial, his defense seemed non-existent. That's what reporters at the time said. Jimmy's lawyers basically argued reasonable doubt. They said, we're not here to prove our case. We're here to let the prosecution prove their case, which they cannot do. Okay. And they didn't even put up a single witness in Jimmy's defense during the guilt or innocence phase. That seemed like maybe not the right tactic because after only two hours of deliberation in a death penalty case, Jimmy Robertson was found guilty. Yes, I would say that I'd be shooketh if it was any other way. Yeah. During the penalty phase, Jimmy's lawyers did their best. It seems like they were conserving their efforts and resources for saving his life. Maybe they just thought he's going to get convicted either way and the best we can do is hope to mitigate the penalty. They argued that not only was Jimmy very mentally ill, which he had a proven track record of seeing a psychiatrist, he was also operating under a Ritalin-triggered psychosis, which, I mean, it's a good argument because I believe both of those things. But isn't if you're taking the Ritalin recreationally, I feel like it would be abuse of that medicine, which I don't think that that would necessarily get you off. It's not like a natural psychosis, right? Well, the South Carolina jury did not think so. They did not think that those factors were mitigating enough to save him from the death penalty, and he was sentenced to death. When the verdict was read, because they have to say essentially what sentence they're suggesting, it sounds like, in both the murder of his mother and his father, he put his hands over his ears and started rocking back and forth like he didn't want to hear the verdict or the punishment. He didn't want to hear the outcome, which also goes back to that kind of spoiled child. Like, if I'm not listening to this, it's not happening. Uh Uh-huh. But it is. It is. At the time that Jimmy was sentenced to death, he had absolutely no one to support him. His own grandmother had told a reporter that he'd, quote, be better off put to sleep. Oh, my gosh. Yep. And his brother Chip was actually locked in jail himself at the time of... Jimmy's sentencing. Chip had been arrested the day before New Year's Eve 1998, holding 8.7 grams of cocaine. For his New Year's Eve party. Sounds like it. As well as prescription drugs, including pain pills, Xanax, and what was referred to as 11 pieces of tranquilizer. I don't know what that is, but that's the term in the book. Ketamine, maybe? Maybe. He also had checks from his own account that was being managed by the bank. So there was somebody at the bank responsible for deciding whether or not he got money from the family account. And he had basically written some checks that he was going to have somebody else cash, and then he was going to split the money with that person and then report to the bank that they'd been stolen. So he had some convoluted check forgery scam going on, and they discovered that as well. Okay. He ended up spending six or seven months in jail. He did receive probation for five years, And as part of his penalty, he was sent to a three-month drug rehab program that he would later say did save his life. So this arrest ultimately was the rock bottom that Chip needed. For the next couple years, authorities continued to look for evidence that Chip was in cahoots with his brother in the double murder. But there was only ever kind of hearsay evidence that mostly Jimmy said that 
Chip would be proud of him or Chip would be interested in Menendezing their parents or this is something me and Chip are going to do. It doesn't seem like Chip himself had discussed any of these plans or that he had actually been plotting this with his brother. I think if anything, maybe he had said like, yeah, life would be better if they died or yeah, mom and dad suck or something like something that doesn't necessarily mean he wants them to actually die, just things that teenagers say. And maybe Jimmy took the murder ball and ran with it on his own, it seems like. So as far as I know, Chip was not involved in this, but his life, if he wasn't involved in this, was completely ruined. I mean, suspicion was cast on him for a long time. I mean, even in both programs that I watched on TV, one of which came out in 2017, they were still saying like, mm, we don't know about Chip. And his entire family was killed or sent away in one fell swoop in one night. Yeah, I feel like, and he was already kind of having a hard time with certain substances. So it's just not. Well, that's what I was also thinking about the calls happening at like 2.30 and 3 in the morning. I was like, was he even with it enough to know? Maybe he wasn't being honest when he said, I don't know what we talked about, to be honest. Yeah, we also don't know if like Jimmy's called him with this like scheme before too in the middle of the night. No idea. So I did hear that he got ripped off by their money manager at one point. The person that was assigned to help manage their money took some of it or something. So I do not think Chip had an easy way about it, but it does not look like he is offended ever again. I could not find an additional police record, so that's promising. Speaking of somebody else who didn't really have a, an easy way of life, Meredith was released from prison after serving 10 years, but it looks like she is either currently serving an additional five-year sentence right now, or she might have just recently gotten out for grand theft. Oh, no. Yeah, so it doesn't look... She has a, um, a new last name, so it looks like at some point she probably married, but I don't know anything else about her life other than she either is in prison right now or has recently been paroled. Jimmy Robertson remains on death row in South Carolina where he's still causing trouble. So he's still alive. I think that there was an execution date that was set for him a long time ago. It doesn't appear to me like this is going to be an execution that happens, so of course I'll keep you guys updated. But as of recording this, as late as March 2023, so this year, he was sanctioned for drug use and several times for attempting to have an illegal cell phone. So he's, he's old or he doesn't look great and he's still getting sanctioned left and right on death row. Oh my goodness. I hope he's getting some of the mental health support he so clearly needs. But this whole thing is just such a waste of two kids. I mean, three really, if you include Chip in this, that all sounded like they were very naturally bright. I know. That's the sad part. Like, I mean, there's a lot of kids who don't even grow up with the same, like, I feel like Jimmy had. Oh, my gosh. Jimmy and Chip had every opportunity yes. at yeah. their fingertips. They were given everything. They got scholarships. They went to Georgia Tech and UPenn. They had every opportunity. And just in their household, too, like the love that they got. So it, I feel like there's a lot of kids, too, who like are so brilliant and don't get these opportunities. It's sad. And we can't necessarily discount. We don't know what their life was like with a mentally ill mother and it, what sounds like maybe an absent father. We don't know. So we can't say firsthand what their experiences in the household were. But compared to a lot of people, they had every, every opportunity. Yes. 
every path was more open for them than others. Yes. In conclusion, be nice to your parents this holiday season. They're probably doing their best. Yeah, whether you see them or not. And if you don't see them, enjoy your Friendsgiving and your chosen fam. Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with having a chosen fam holiday instead of a a blood fam holiday. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so you are not sharing cranberry sauce with somebody who wants to kill you. Happy Thanksgiving, Americans. Bye. Bye.